0: Feel free to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. We'll be looking at this chapter in its entirety this afternoon. In my opinion, really jumping into the deep end of the book. It's not a coincidence that most of the series that you find through the book of Revelation usually end at about chapter 3, which is a shame in my opinion. The Lord didn't just give us the first three chapters. He gave us the whole book. And hopefully, as we continue to go through it, you'll see its great value. But tonight, we find ourselves in Revelation 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And before I do, I remind you, as always, that what we're about to hear read, brothers and sisters, is the word of the living God. And so, may we receive it from him as such. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, "'Come,' and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "'Come,' and I looked, and behold, a black horse.' And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us, from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Let's pray. Our Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that in all ages You have taught the hearts of Your people by graciously sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant to us now, we pray, the same Spirit, so that we might have a right understanding of your Word, to the end that we would rejoice forever in the comfort that you have given to us. We ask these things through the merits of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, And we ask these things for his sake. Amen. Well, as we jump into Revelation 6, one of the most important and helpful passages that we should have in the back of our minds, and if you don't, I'm going to plant it there for you, is the Olivet Discourse that Jesus delivers to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24. Because many of the things that we have in this vision here in Revelation chapter 6 are things that Jesus had already talked about and told his disciples were going to happen. And the reason I want to go there is because Jesus actually tells his disciples the pastoral reason for why he's telling them about these things before they happen. These things are going to happen, by the way, at least in the first eight verses of Revelation chapters 1 through 6. After Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, And until he comes back a second time. And so we'll look at each one of those. But Jesus tells them, the disciples, that these things are going to happen. Why? He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, I've told you these things so that you are not alarmed. This must take place, but the end has not yet come. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This vision in Revelation chapter 6 is given to us for the exact same reason. As we look at the world around us, as we look at all the suffering, right? You don't have to turn on the news and have it on long to see some horrific images right now of what's going on in Ukraine, in that battle between Russia and Ukraine. Horrific things. Horrific. And doesn't that cause a little bit of alarm in you? How is the Lord in control of this chaotic, seemingly from our perspective, mess? And here is Jesus in Matthew 24 and in Revelation 6 saying, I told you that these things would happen. And what we're going to see in Revelation 6 is not just that he says these things will happen, but he says, I am the one who unleashes them on the earth. For two reasons. To the judgment of my enemies and for the sanctification of my people. So don't lose sight of that. Don't give in to the temptation to think, we've got to abandon following the Lamb because He's not sovereign, He's not in control. How is this a part of His plan? He says, it's all part of my plan. And I'm telling you that it's going to happen so that you will not be alarmed. And so as we look at this vision then in Revelation 6, I want us to look at the three realities That John shows us. First of all, I want us to look at the suffering world. We'll look at that in verses 1 through 8 as the lamb opens the first four seals on the scroll that's given to him by the father, the one who's sitting on the throne. Second of all, we'll look at this vision moving from earth back to the heavenly temple. We'll see the glorified saints there in verses 9 through 11 as the lamb opens the fifth seal. And then lastly, thirdly, we'll look at the vision of the final judgment that we're given in verses 12 through 17 as the sixth seal is open. And we're not opening the seventh seal tonight. That'll come in a couple more weeks. But my hope and prayer is that the Lord would be pleased to use his word in the same way that he did in the hearts of the disciples and this original audience, that we would not be alarmed that we would understand as we see all the chaos in the world, it's not actually chaos. The one seated on the throne is sovereignly bringing about his purposes and we can trust him. So let's look first then at the suffering world as we see the lamb opening these first four seals. And actually before we jump into the text, I want to point to you and just put on your radar two really important passages from the Old Testament that John is leaning into very heavily here in verses 1 through 8 and these first four scrolls. The first passage that he's leaning on in the Old Testament is found in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We see that in this vision, Zechariah sees uh, horses, four sets of horses that are pretty much the same color to the horses that John sees in verses 1 through 8. And these horses are sent out into the earth by the Lord to what end? That they might punish and crush and destroy the enemies of God's people, those who are oppressing God's people. So that's the first image that Daniel, that John has in his head as he's writing this vision. And it reveals to us that, again, the Lord is punishing his enemies and he's sanctifying his people through this process. The second passage that we need to have stuck in our heads from the Old Testament is Ezekiel chapter 14. We should have Ezekiel 14 stuck in the back of our heads is because the Lord sends this fourfold covenantal curse upon his people, uh, four curses, and he tells us that he does that to punish the unbelievers in Israel in the covenant community, to destroy those who are marked as a part of the covenant community, but they're not actually walking in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. They don't actually belong ultimately. And then he's also bringing these things about to purify true Israel within the covenant community. And these four disasters that he brings are told to us in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. Let me just read that to you. The Lord sends upon Israel... This is the Lord speaking, my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. And we're going to see that pretty closely mirrors these four curses now that the Lord is bringing upon all the inhabitants of the world, believer and unbeliever alike. So you can look more closely at those later. We don't have time to explore them the way I'd like to. But having laid that groundwork, let's look at each of these four disasters that are unleashed through these four horsemen as the lamb opens up each one of the seals. First of all, the first horseman is sent out, the first seal is opened, and we see that this horseman represents conquest. Look at verse 1 with me there. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come, Now, just to sort of remind us where we are here in the book, John is very much borrowing the structure of Revelation 4 and 5 from Daniel chapter 7. It's very, very obvious. And the reason that he's doing that is because John is showing us that Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days on the throne and being given the scroll, being given the book so that he can open them, Jesus, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, is fulfilling this vision. And he's now ascended to the heavenly temple. And he's approached the heavenly throne. And the scroll, the book, has been given to him. And he is worthy to open them because of all he accomplished. The Son, by taking on flesh. And so he's opening the scroll now by opening these seven seals. He is the second Adam who is worthy to do so. And as he opens the first seal, notice what happens in verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, it's interesting, as I read various commentators, many throughout church history have interpreted this to be a vision of Christ, coming back to conquer. And you go, oh, well that kind of makes sense, right? Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on a white horse. But I disagree with those interpreters. I side with the other group of interpreters throughout church history who have said it's not wise to separate that first rider from the rest of the horsemen. Because even if we go back to Zechariah 6, they're a package deal. And so it's a really odd thing to say that one's Jesus. And then all the other three riders are these satanic, demonic characters? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so, what I believe is that this is a messianic pretender. This is a false messiah, a demonic, satanic, false messiah. And this should make sense to you because remember what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 24. What does he say in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5 to his disciples? When they say, hey, Jesus, you said the temple is going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? And Jesus answered them. He said, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. So I think that's what's happening here. Now, here's the shocking thing. The shocking thing is not that Jesus says, hey, this is going to happen in Matthew 24. What's shocking is, who's the one who's unleashing this false Messiah? It's the Lamb. And we know that because you don't see this in English. But in the Greek, you see that phrase there where it says a crown was given to him? That phrase there was given in the Greek, that's a divine passive. And so what we're being told here is that the one who's not named but is giving this crown is none other than the divine lamb himself. He is giving this false messiah ability to be able to deceive many through lies by saying, look, here I am, I'm the messiah, I'm the Christ. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when we look at our world today, we see plenty of false messiahs, don't we? Probably the most clear example of false messiah are bad politicians, right? I'm here to bring you hope. I'm here to save the world. Everything's going to be different if you elect me, right? Or what about bad religious leaders? You know, if you just do exactly what I say, I can guarantee you salvation. Or maybe hitting a little too close to home, what about those who are in control of the science? The science says this, bow down and worship because we are in control. I am the science, right? We have these false messiahs alive and well today, promising things that they can not deliver on. And here's what we need to understand, brothers and sisters. Why are those false messiahs here? They seem to ruin our social experiment in many ways over the last couple of years, didn't they? And we go, how can this be a part of God's plan? He is judging unbelievers. By allowing those false messiahs to hoodwink many, he has given them the ability to do that. And he's doing that to purify us. That we might grow in discernment between that which is good and that which is evil, between that which is true and that which is false, between that which is beautiful and that which is ugly. And we need to understand that when we see these things happen. Not despair and think that this is outside of the control Of Almighty God and the Lamb who sits on the throne with Him. So, the first seal, the Lamb releases this deceptive, false Messiah. Many of them, it's not just one, many of them. And again, when is this happening? From the time of Christ's ascension until He comes back again. And so, we're seeing this happen in our day and age. The second seal that gets broken releases the second horseman who represents war and bloodshed. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So what do we have here? Again, another satanic, demonic character riding on a horse who brings war and bloodshed. Again, Matthew 24, right, verse 6, Jesus says what to his disciples? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, says Jesus, but the end is not yet. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, again, we missed this in the English. Two divine passives here. He was given. The permission to take away peace from the earth. He was given a great sword. Jesus has not only foretold this was happening, he's saying, I'm sovereign in control. I'm unleashing this on the earth so that there are wars, so there is bloodshed. And why are they successful at that? Because I allow it. I've ordained it. And why is the Lord doing this? Do we view wars this way? We're watching one unfold before our very eyes. Do we despair and say, this isn't a part of the Lord's plan? Or do we say, behold, the wrath of the Lamb, whose great wrath is being poured out on his enemies, and who is sanctifying his church, purifying his church in Ukraine and in Russia, for that matter? Do we view it this way? Because this is what Jesus is saying. Otherwise, you will be alarmed, and you will despair, and you will give in to temptation, and you will not endure. So we have the first seal unleashing deceptive conquerors, false messiahs, the second seal unleashing war, and then the third seal is opened. This third horseman is released, and he represents famine. Look at verse 5 with me. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. Now, already we're getting some of the imagery here that this is referring to famine. How do we know that? Because in the ancient world, when there was a famine, there was a scarcity of goods. The way that they rationed those out is by measuring them on a scale. Weight on one side, then the food on the other. That's all you get. And so what's being pictured here is severe inflation. Actually, we'll get to the severe inflation in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Now you have a note most likely in your Bible there that says a denarius is one day's wage. And do you know how much three quarts of wheat or barley is? It's about enough to make a little loaf of bread. This is like eight or 16 times inflation. Imagine working all day and barely being able to feed your family. And why is this happening? Well, this is where we have to be careful not to separate the horsemen so neatly. Don't these things often happen because of wars, scarcity, supply chain issues? And don't these things often happen because of bad, foolish politicians who mess with things and use their authority in foolish ways? so that inflation starts to rise? Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And yet, they make sure they take care of themselves, don't they? The rich, those in power, make sure they take care of themselves. We get a little hint of that at the end of verse 6, when the voice says, and do not harm the oil and wine. Listen, if all you can afford is a loaf of bread to feed yourself and your family, guess what you're not buying? Luxuries like oil and wine. But guess who continues to buy them? The rich those in power, because they can afford it. And this, again, affects believers and unbelievers alike, but for very different reasons. One is judgment. One is purification. One is sanctification, to remind us in that hunger, these politicians can't bring about the kingdom of God. They can't give me the true food that I actually need. And so it's a reminder, it purifies us. But what do we see happening here? We see, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Behold the wrath of the Lamb. So we have conquest through deception, first seal, war, second. Famine, third seal, Lastly, the fourth seal is opened, and this rider brings pestilence and disease. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So here we have this next demonic character. Again, notice he's given authority, another divine passive. They're all over the place here. Who's in control of this? The lamb who's seated on the throne to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. So again, we're seeing the overlap of the four writers. Don't give in to the temptation to try to so neatly divide them. And so even though there's all these causes of death, the reason that we focus on pestilence here is because if you see there in verse 8, that English word death with a capital D, and then the English word pestilence, in the Greek, those are the same word. And again and again, all throughout the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, more often than not, it's translated disease or pestilence. And so the reason we focus on that is that's what is being unleashed here. Folks, we just lived through a pandemic. This still happens. Do we look at this and say, no, it's destroying everything. This isn't a part of God's plan. The wrath of the Lamb to judge his enemies and to purify us. And haven't we seen him do that? Now, this isn't equally felt by everybody. It doesn't happen to every human being without exception, right? You notice there that the horseman is only given authority over a fourth of the earth. So it's felt universally in the sense that there's nowhere you can go where you don't see it. Didn't we see that with COVID? Just as an example. And yet it doesn't affect every single person in the exact same way. So here's the point. What's the overall point here? that we're being given in these first four seals as they're being broken or opened. The point is that as the risen and ascended Messiah, Jesus has been given all authority by the Father. He's been given the scroll. He's been given the book. All judgment has been given from the Father to me, and he's opening it. And as he's doing so, he is wielding the world forces of evil as his agents, to bring about his appointed ends, namely the sanctification of his people and the judgment of his enemies. And this shouldn't surprise us, folks. Isn't this what God has always been up to? Salvation for his people through the judgment of his enemies. Think of the flood. Salvation for Noah and his family, judgment for all creation. Think of the plagues that are stricken upon Egypt, salvation for the Israelites, judgment upon God's people. Think of the crossing of the Red Sea. I mean, we could do this all day. The redemption of God's people and judgment over their enemies. And so that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. By the way, don't we see that at the cross? Don't we? At the actual cross, Jesus is dying between two criminals One hears the gospel, sees Jesus, and he believes, and that very day, he's with the Lord in paradise. What about the other criminal? He hears about Jesus. He rejects him. And that day, he is judged and goes to hell when he dies. And so you see this. You see this judgment and this salvation. And brothers and sisters, we have got to understand that that is exactly what The Lord is up to so that we can persevere and endure by his grace in faithfulness, because otherwise we're going to fall away. This world is just too crazy from our perspective, as limited as it is. That's the whole point of the exhortations to the letters of the seven churches, isn't it? Endure, conquer, by my grace. And so what we see then is that Jesus' words In the upper room to his disciples in John 16 verse 33 are true. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulations, but take comfort because I've overcome the world. And so what we can expect then is that our lives, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a moment, our lives will follow the same pattern as the Lord Jesus Christ. First a cross and then a crown. Our seeming defeat at the hands of the world will actually be our triumph by God's grace. So we've looked at the first reality here, the suffering of the world and the first four seals being opened. Next, let's look at the glorified saints in the fifth seal. And these last two points will go faster, I promise. The fifth seal. Look at verse 9 with me. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So now the vision is moving from the earth and what's happening there back up to the heavenly temple and the throne in particular. And what are we shown? We're shown these glorified saints who are martyrs. Now, I just want to be clear with you, and if you have questions about this, we can talk afterwards, but I don't think that this is just Those saints who have died for their faith, who were just martyred like their heads were cut off or something. I think that's what's in the vision, but it's representing all believers. And just very briefly, that's because all believers in some way, shape, or form suffer for their faith and are persecuted for their faith. The Lord Jesus promises us that will be the case and that that will actually happen. And so what's being pictured here then in this vision, what's being shown to us is the saints in glory. And notice that John sees that these saints are under the altar. Now, what in the world is that a reference to? Well, this is temple language, right? Think about the earthly temple. The altar that's being referenced here is the altar of incense. And what happened on the altar of incense? Well, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, sacrificial blood was poured out and then incense was burned there. Uh, to symbolize the prayers of God's people are in his presence. And where are these glorified saints? Their lives have been poured out, right? As Paul says in Colossians 1.24, filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And like the incense being burned in the presence of the Lord, they are in the presence of the Lord. Under the shelter of his wings, beholding his glory. And so that's what John is symbolically representing to us here. Notice they're also described as those who are slain. Now again, we miss this in the English, but that's the exact same Greek word that is used in reference to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, he's the lamb that is slain. And so what we're seeing is the closeness of our identity because of our union with Jesus that as he is slain, we are slain as well. But more than that, we are participating in his life because he's the lamb that was slain but is now alive. We are also alive in him in the very presence of God. And so we have these deep, rich truths that's just killing me that we can't talk more about it. But you notice what the saints are doing in verse 10 as they're in the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 10 with me they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Paul describes us as saints in Romans eight thirty six as lambs who are led to the slaughter. We're killed all the day long for the Lord's sake. And so here are these glorified saints crying out, Lord, how long? And this is an allusion to uh, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, where again, horsemen are patrolling the earth to punish the enemies of God's people. And the angel of the Lord cries out as he watches them patrolling, saying, How long, O Lord, until you fully and finally crush your enemies and vindicate your great name? And so the point that John is making here by alluding to that is that it's not ultimately about vengeance on the part of God's people. Ultimately, what it's about is the glory of God being vindicated. Because why were these martyrs killed? They were faithful unto death. They didn't count their lives more precious than being faithful to their precious Savior who died for them. And so they would rather die than not be faithful to the Lord. And so from the world's perspective, it looks like their enemies conquered. And so they're saying, Lord, how long until you vindicate your name and show that we were right to worship you rather than bow and submit to them and not glorify you as we ought to. Show your glory, Lord. That's what they're crying out for here, that the Lord would be vindicated upon their enemies who are in a derogatory way here called what? Earth dwellers. Those who dwell on the earth. Those whose home is here, not in heaven with you, they are idolaters who have worshipped the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And so, Lord, crush them. Bring your justice to bear for their cosmic treason in worshipping what you've made rather than worshipping you. And how does the Lord respond to the cries of the saints for justice? Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Notice the intimate care of the Lord for his people. He provides them with a white robe Symbolizing that by his grace they've endured till the end. They've conquered. They've been faithful. They are pure by his grace. And God continues to give them rest before his throne. Until when? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what's the answer here? Until what happens? Until all the elect are brought into the kingdom first thing. And second of all, until the suffering that I've appointed for my people is satisfied. Notice the connection with Christ, right? Suffering was appointed to him. And he says, if there's any other way, he's not like, yay, suffering, but he knows it's appointed. If there's any other way, let this cup pass, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we have suffering appointed to us as the church of God, that we are to endure to show his glory for our sanctification. Until that is fulfilled and all the elect come in, then the day of judgment will come. And so in summary of this second point, as we look at the glorified saints praying for the Lord to bring justice, there's so many applications that we could look at. But just let me briefly highlight three here. Hopefully I don't forget any of them. First of all, this highlights for us the reality that Suffering in the Christian life is essential. And I don't know if you're like me, but I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that because we live in Disneyland here in the West. And so that tempts us to view suffering as what? Something that I've just got to muddle through until I can get back to my pretty terrific in general life. Let's just get it behind the rear view and then I can keep on having a great time. That's how I'm tempted to view it. And brothers and sisters, that is not the picture that we have here. This suffering is appointed to purify us, to know Christ more through the fellowship of his sufferings. And so I challenge you as I challenge myself, we've got to see our lives this way so that we approach suffering saying, Lord, cause me to grow through this. I don't enjoy it. You know I don't enjoy it. But you know what's better for me than I do. And so I receive it from your hand. The next thing that we've got to understand and rest in is that who is the one setting the boundaries for this suffering? Who's the one that says to the fourth horseman, only a fourth of the earth and only this much suffering for my people? It's the Lamb. Trust that He knows (laughs) the right limits to push you to. Trust that. Know that He's in control of this. And then lastly, rest in the glory that awaits you. Resting forever in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Glorified as we were created to be waiting for the Son to come back. These are hard truths. But they've been revealed to us that we might endure to the end. And not be alarmed and overwhelmed in such a way that we turn away from the living God. So we've looked at the suffering world, the glorified saints. Lastly, I promise very quickly, the final judgment and the sixth seal. It just seems like a shame to go fast, but it also seems like a shame to break up this vision that goes together. So let's look at verses 12 through 17. And before I do look there, just to remind you, this is the Lord's answer to the prayers of the saints. When will justice come? and it's like time kind of gets fast forward because apparently now all the elective come in, all the suffering that the Lord has appointed for his people has been experienced, and now the great day of judgment comes. And so let's read about that as John symbolically represents it to us in verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, these couple of verses are just chock full of Old Testament imagery. I barely have time to mention them couple examples, Isaiah 24, Ezekiel 32, Ezekiel 34, Joel 3, Habakkuk 3. It's so much here. Here's what's clear though from all of those Old Testament references. They're always symbolically representing to us the day of judgment that the Lord says will come. The language also matches how Jesus speaks about the great day of judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Clear enough? Very similar. If you need further proof that this is the great day of judgment, let's look at the rest of these verses here briefly. Verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones... And the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So what's the response of God's enemies on the great day of judgment? In short, they vainly attempt to hide, don't they? They hide because they know they've sinned. They hide because they know that they've committed cosmic treason by worshiping the creation rather than the Lord. They hide because they know for their sin and rebellion they deserve the eternal wrath of God. And where does all this hiding take us back to? Right where we were this morning in Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And so what we see then, as G.K. Beale writes, is that God has determined that sinful history must end the exact same way it began. How did it begin? How will it end? With man hiding from the wrath of God for his sins. And for his idolatry. And you see it's because fallen man has idolized creation. That creation itself did you notice? Is symbolized as being utterly destroyed. Completely eradicated. There is a decreation that takes place on the great day of judgment. And why is that happening? Because those who dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers. Those who have sought to make this earth their ultimate home will lose it all. They have built the foundation of their lives upon a creation that will collapse on that great day. Under the weight of their own idolatry by the wrath of Him who is seated on the throne and of the Lamb. For the day of wrath has come and who can stand? That's what will happen to God's enemies, each and every one of them, at the final judgment. But brothers and sisters, do you know why that won't happen to us on that great day? Do you know why we will be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous, as Psalm 2 talks about? It's only because of Jesus. It's only because the Son of God lived the perfect life that we failed to, He died the atoning death on the cross that we deserve. He experienced the wrath of that great day of judgment on the cross for us so that we never will. Because you see, the difference between those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe isn't that one group tries to hide from their sin and the other does. No, no, no. We must all seek refuge from our sin. The difference is that unbelievers seek refuge in this world. They look to their God, the things of this world, to save them, and it can't. The mountains and rocks cannot hide you from the just wrath of God Almighty. They cannot. The only fit hiding place from the wrath of God is in His Son, the Lamb who was slain for us, and for our salvation. And so the only reason that we will stand on that great day is because by God's grace, we will be hiding in him, repentantly seeking refuge in him on that great day, even as we had all the way up to that point. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And you see, brothers and sisters, in closing, it's because we know that the Father lovingly, graciously, mercifully has given us His Son to be slain for us, that we can trust Him and endure, even as we are slain in this life by the sufferings that He brings. Though He slay me, I will still hope in Him. Because just as Jesus' greatest triumph at the cross looked like an utter defeat from the perspective of the world, the same will be true for us, brothers and sisters. To the world, we will look like nothing more than lambs led to the slaughter. But what Christ is actually doing is He's preparing us for glory. That's what this vision is revealing to us. So don't despair as you suffer. Because the lamb The Son of God who takes away your sins and the sins of the whole world is sovereign over every last bit of it. And He has ordained all of it to conform you to His image. So trust Him and hold fast to Him until that great day when the wrath of God is revealed against all our enemies and He is vindicated and we are vindicated with Him. For then we will enter into the joy of our Master. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.